Hi, and welcome again to another edition of the Rabbi Rabinowitz Podcast, hosted by the Jacksonville Colo. This is part number four in our preparation for Rosh Hashanah. Last time, we spoke a lot about the davening. There's one important part about the davening, which I forgot to mention, and that is that the longest Amidah, the longest Shmona that we ever, ever say is Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. It just goes on and on and on. What makes it so long? So what makes it so long is that normally on every Shabbos or Yom Tov, so the Shmon Esrei consists of the first three brachos that we have every single day, the last three brachos that we have every single day, and the middle part, which is called Kiddushas Hayom, which talks about the fact that that day is either Shabbos or it's a Yom Tov. Not to be confused with during the week where we have a bunch of brachos in the middle where we're making all of these different requests from Hashem. But on Shabbos or Yom Tov, so the Amidah, the Shema is so long because of the fact that, because of the fact that we're only, sorry, let me try that again. On Yom Tov, so the middle bracha only has one bracha, and that is talking just about the day itself, and that today is a special day, Shabbos or Yom Tov, and it talks about the theme of the day. Parenthetically, the true name is Amida, and that's because we have to stand up when we say it with our feet together. Um, sort of as a slang, it's become known as Shmona Esrei, the 18, meaning the 18 brachos. So that's because during the week, there are 18 brachos in the Shmona Esrei. Therefore, on Shabbos, it would, or Yom Tov, when you only have seven brachos, it really would not apply to call it Shmona Esrei, but by slang, that's what we call it. Even more parenthetically, is that it's not even true that there's 18 brachos. If you actually count, during the week, there are 19 brachos. That's because there was one bracha, the bracha of Vlam Shinim, where we talk about the heritage that was actually added later, so therefore it got originally known as Shmona Esri, the 18, even though really it's the 19, but of course on Shabbos and Yom Tov, it's not, it's really just the 7. Anyway, on Rosh Hashanah from Musaf, actually Shmona Esri consists of 9 brachos. It has the first 3 brachos and the last 3 brachos. Um, like we mentioned last time, the 3rd bracha, the bracha of Atakadosh, is a bit longer. We mention other things, specifically on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But then the middle three brachos. So like any Yom Tov, we do start out with the Kedushas Hayom, where we talk about the fact that it is a Yom Tov. And we start with the same words that we start with every Yom Tov. Atav v'chartanu mikal ha'amim. We talk about the the, uh, sanctity of the day. But then... But then, on Rosh Hashanah at Musaf, we have three new sections. The first section is called Malchios, where we talk about Hashem being the king. The second section, Zichronos, that Hashem remembers everything. And the third section, Shofaros, or Shofros, where we talk about the blowing of the shofar. Now, the way that it works is like this. Here's the actual format. The Every one of the three sections starts out with an introduction, and then... After the introduction, we bring a bunch of psukim, different verses that actually discuss the theme that we are discussing. The most famous of all the introductions is Malchios, which is the first one, because the introduction for Malchios is Aleinu, which we say every single day, and we sing and show every Shabbos, that Aleinu L'Shabeach Adonakol is actually the introduction to Malchios. Now, typically the Chazen doesn't use the same tune that we use uh, on Shabbos, so while on Shabbos we may do Aleinu L'Shabeach Adonakol the um, the actual tune that the Chazin uses when he does it, and of course when you're saying Shemesh to yourself quietly, 
then uh, then then there is no tune. But um, but the chazan is a much more drawn out uh, tune. Aleinu l'shabeyachadonakol. Anyway, so the uh, so the introduction for Malchios is Aleinu, where we talk about the fact that uh, that Hashem is the king over the entire world, and then we bring psukim. Now, how do the psukim? How do the verses work? So we bring ten psukim to prove our point or to discuss the fact that Hashem is the king. We start out with three psukim from the Torah. So you have this introduction where it says, uh, um, like it's written in your Torah. Um, and then you have three psukim from the Torah. Then you have three psukim from Tehillim. Three psukim from Tehillim. So that's introduced with the words of a divrei kadshicha, kasev lemer. Literally, in your holy words, it's written as says. But it's it's referring specifically to Tehillim, and then from the prophets, from Navi, val yedeavadecha hanaviim kasev lemer. So you have three from the Torah, three from Tehillim, followed by three from Navi. And then we bring in one more, last one from the Torah. Usually what happens is that you have the introduction, then you have the different verses, the different psukim, then you have the bracha that finishes off the section, and and like almost like snuck into the bracha, you have that last pasuk that comes from the Torah. Now as a general rule, if the pasuk is going to be discussing the theme that we are discussing in that particular bracha, so you're going to see that word. So, for example, in Malchios, which talks about Hashem being the Melech, the king, so every Pasuk is going to say something about Hashem being the king. So, for example, um, you may see V'nem Arvahaya Hashem Lemelech al on the other hand, you have Hashem Yimloch Yolam So it doesn't say Melech, but it says Yimloch, and the root of Yimloch is that same Melech, that Hashem will rule forever as the king. Interestingly enough, there is a whole discussion. What should be the very last Pasuk from the Torah? You see that according to the rules that were set up, so it needs to have that root word of Melech, of, of king or ruling, on the other hand, we also want to make sure that the words that we are, the Pusik that we're talking about, only has good ideas in it. In other words, if there's some Pusik that says that Hashem is the king and therefore he's going to punish you when you sin, so that's not the type of thing that we want to talk about on Rosh Hashanah. So they actually couldn't find a fourth Pusik. They're only worth three Psukim. So the very last Pusik that we quote from the Torah is a wonderful, beautiful Pusik, but it doesn't say Melech. It says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. doesn't mention anything about being a king, but of course, when we say Shema, so we are supposed to be Mechabel, all Malchus Shemaim, which means we're supposed to accept upon ourselves the yoke of heaven. We're supposed to accept upon ourselves that Hashem is our king. Therefore, the Chacham decided it was a good choice. It was an appropriate last Pasuk to choose from the Torah. It was a good fourth Pasuk. So that is the Tem Sukkim that you have over there. And then the same holds true with the next two sections, with Zichronos and with Shofros, that it has an introduction. Then you have the ten Psukim, three from the Torah, three from Tehillim, three from Navi, followed by one last one from the Torah. And that is the Musaf. Now, normally, when the Chazim does the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, called Chazaras 
Hashatz in Hebrew. Shatz is actually not a word, it's an acronym. Rashi Tevos, it stands for Shaliach Tzibur. Shaliach Tzibur means the agent of the congregation, which is another name for the Chazin. So when the Chazin does his repetition, the Chazaras Hashatz, so normally a repetition is exactly like it sounds. Every single word that you said in your silent Shmona Esrei, the Chazin is saying in his repetition. An exception to that is on Rosh Hashanah and on Yom Kippur, and this is honestly what makes the davening so long, is that we have all these extra prayers that were not part of the silent Shmona Esrei, that we then go and put into the repetition. They're known as piyutim, but they're these extra prayers that were added in. Probably the most famous and perhaps the most solemn prayer that was added in is Unisana Tokef. Unisana Tokef starts out with those words, and then it goes on for a number of paragraphs until we get to the Kedusha. Now, there's a whole story about Unisana Tokef and the authorship of Unisana Tokef. Some people question the historical accuracy of that, but... Nevertheless, it's a wonderful story with this Rebbe Amnon and a bishop that wanted him to convert, but it's printed on the bottom of the Machzor. So I'm just going to suggest that when you're in Shul, on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, that you read it there, uh, rather than me telling it now. But some of the most famous words from Musaf, like, for example, Birosh Hashanah Yikhasevon, Uviyom Tzom Kippur Yikhasevon, that on Rosh Hashanah were Everyone is written down, and on Yom Kippur, it's, uh, it's sealed, and then it continues, uh, who by fire, or who by, uh, etc., all the different ways that people are going to either live or die over the course of the year. That's written there, uh, which is typically said very loud by the Chazan, and then subsequently by the congregation, which means that Teshuvah, repentance, feel prayer, and tzedakah, and giving charity, is a way to get rid of an evil decree. So God forbid if an evil decree was decreed against someone, so the way to overcome that evil decree would be by working and doing a lot of teshuva, davening, and giving of tzedakah. I also want to mention another idea about the repetition, and that is during the repetition when the chazan says the aleinu, like uh, I was uh, singing before, so... uh, the, we don't do this in our silent Shemona Esri, but in the repetition when the Chazan says the Aleinu, so instead of doing like we normally do when we say the Aleinu, when we say, that we go and we bow at our waist, so in the repetition, so everybody bows the way that we used to bow in the Beis Hamikdash, and that is by going and actually fully prostrating ourselves on the ground. So during Aleinu, we prostrate ourselves on the ground, if you're in a show where uh, there are many more people than seats and it gets very tight, then it does become a little bit tricky to find room. The Gemara tells us that on Yom Kippur, when everybody would do this, so Yom Kippur was jam-packed, the entire Jewish uh, people was there at the base of Hamikdash, and uh, there was a special miracle that took place, that even though when they were standing, everybody was like, I don't even know if he could fit in one more person here, that's how tight it is, but somehow when it came time to prostrate and take up so, many, so much more space on the ground, nevertheless there was room for everyone to be able to bow down. But depending on the show, is how much room you have for Aleinu. Sometimes uh, people actually go in uh, shifts in order to uh, make sure that everybody has room. But we, go, we do this full prostration. Now, because we're not in the Beis Hamikdash, if one would bow on a stone floor, that would actually be an Aver, that would be a sin. So therefore, we go and we put some type of separation between us and the floor, like a uh, 
like a paper towel or a paper or something like that. Now, it's questionable if you have a carpet floor, if it's necessary to do that because this, the floor is not stone. So many people have the practice to do so, but not everyone does so, which is why you'll probably notice and show that there are people that are going around and they're grabbing um, uh, paper where they can find it. Uh, by us, usually they find, uh, they can't take the flyers which have any Torah on them because it would be inappropriate to put that on the ground. So if somebody's advertising some type of event which is coming up and there's no Torah there, so those are the perfect ones to grab. People put it down uh, where they're bowing to avoid having this problem of bowing directly onto the ground, which we only do in the Beis Hamikdash, And then afterwards they collect the papers, which maybe got a little bit creased, hopefully not, and they go and they put them back in the back of the shul to avoid this problem. There is one other important prayer that we add on Rosh Hashanah, and that is Avinu Malkeinu. Uh, during the entire 10 days of repentance from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, every single day we say Avinu Malkeinu once in the morning and once after once after Mincha. So that starts on Rosh Hashanah, and the one exception is on Shabbos, we don't say Avinu Malkeinu, and also on Erev Shabbos, Friday afternoon at Mincha, we also don't say Avinu Malkeinu during that time either. Just to round out this uh, topic of prayer, and I believe with this we'll have covered everything, uh, after we daven Mincha on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, so we go and we say Tashlich. Now, many of the places where I lived, in order to say Tashlich, it was quite a walk to be able to go find a pond or lake that had uh, that had a, a body of water that had fish in it. Here in Jacksonville, it's a it's a bit of a joke. You don't go walking anywhere; you just walk out of the shul to the parking lot, and uh, and and you're right there. But it used to be that, uh, like when I was growing up, so there was a place in the neighborhood that people went to, and there were 20, 30, 40 shoals in the neighborhood, and everybody from the community would end up meeting each other at, uh, at, at, at Tashluch because there wasn't like here in Jackson, where everywhere you turn, there's another pond. Anyway, what is this custom of, what is this custom of Tashluch? It's a tricky one to, it's a tricky one to explain exactly, uh, how it works. The idea is supposed to be something about throwing away our sins. Obviously, it's much more complicated than that because of the fact that you actually have to repent. You can't just walk over to the river and uh, say, mutter a few uh, verses and uh, chapter 2 from, 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 from Psalms, from Tehillim, and say, okay, fine, all, all my sins got thrown out. It, it doesn't work that way. There are many reasons that are given. Uh, some say that uh, on Rosh Hashanah we're coronating Hashem as our king, and in the olden days, coronations of kings actually took place at a body of water. Um, other people say that we go specifically to a place that has fish because of the fact that um, that fish are hidden from the eye uh, because they're covered by water. And there's this complicated idea that uh, sometimes a person uh, could be looked at by someone else with an evil eye and when you're covered by the water, so nobody can look at you with an evil eye because they can barely see you. So we want to be protected from evil eye. So just like fish are protected from the evil eye, which is the uh, which is the bracha that Yaakov gave to Menashe and Ephraim when he said to them, "Hamacha goel larov." So v'yidgu is uh, from that word dog fish, and uh, that's part of the idea also that they should be protected from an eye in hara. From, from an evil eye. Uh, but whatever it is, that, that is the custom. The custom is that we go to a place 
that has water, and we say these uh, we say these prayers over there. Many people do not say everything that it says in the Machzer. I think in the Machzer it says, like, the Chida added the following prayers, which many have a custom to say. Uh, it makes it much longer, and it's a beautiful thing to do if that is, if that is your custom, or if you have the time to do it, like, like why not? But it's not necessary to say all those uh, all those extra prayers that are printed in the Machzer as part of as part of Tashlich. Uh, there is this famous, famous idea about taking breadcrumbs and throwing breadcrumbs to the fish, and the fish eat it, and uh, you know, I don't know, I remember learning as a kid something about if the fish eats the breadcrumbs, so then they're eating up your sins, and uh, and and then your sins are getting uh, forgiven. This is a technical problem on Yom Tov, and the reason for that is because it's actually not permitted to feed an animal that does not rely on you for food during Yom Tov. So in other words, obviously if a person has a pet, or if they have a farm, and every day they go and they feed the animals. So on Yom Tov, not only could they, but they must. They're required to go and feed their animals. However, wild animals, which don't depend on you, and they somehow manage every single day getting food, so you're actually not allowed to feed them on Yom Tov, which means it would be a problem halachically to take breadcrumbs and feed the fish at Tashlich. However, Tashlich does not have to be said on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Tashlich could be said after Rosh Hashanah. Many people do have a custom to go specifically after Rosh Hashanah, uh, it could be said up to and including Hoshana Rabbah, which is the seventh day of Sukkot. So uh, many people that don't say it on Rosh Hashanah say it on Hoshana Rabbah because they forgot to do it. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's the last day. I have to go do it today. But um, nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, if somebody would go not on Yom Tov and they would go uh, during the week to go say Tashuch then, so then 100% it would be perfectly okay to feed the fish. I don't know if there's a positive aspect to it, but if, uh, you know, if that's the way that one said Tashuch always, and they enjoy saying Tashuch by uh, taking uh, the breadcrumbs and throwing it to the fish, so then, uh, so then, yeah, you would want to do that during the week and not on Yom Tov. There is a famous idea not to sleep on Rosh Hashanah, and it has to do with Kabbalah, that uh, basically if somebody's being judged and uh, his uh, his uh, neshama, his uh, his mazel, whatever that means, he's being uh, he's, his his soul is being judged, and they look down at him from the heavens and they see that the guy is sleeping. So like it doesn't look good, it doesn't look right. So therefore, there's there's this idea to uh, try not to sleep on Rosh Hashanah. Now the truth is that. Uh, the Mishnah Brura already writes that the main judgment really takes place in the morning. So by the time the afternoon comes around, it's definitely not as severe, definitely not as serious of an issue to take a nap because of the fact that really the judgment is over by the time the afternoon comes around. And the other thing that he writes is, he says, it really depends what you're doing. Like if you're going to be sitting around the table and, uh, I don't know, speaking Lashon Hara, so uh, what do you think is worse, taking a nap or speaking Lashon Hara? So obviously uh, the best choice would be, fine, so stay up and use your time productively. But this is where the idea comes from that a lot of people have that they don't take a nap on Rosh Hashanah in the afternoon. Thank you so much for listening.